You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. Just a bit of warning about today's story, and that is you may find a few of the words unacceptable by today's standards, but I have opted to quote them exactly as they were stated more than a century ago. Now just for a moment, take a step back from today's modern life and try to imagine a world without moving pictures. You know, no Zoom meetings, no YouTube clips, no television shows, no motion pictures, and no Looney Tunes cartoons. Certainly can't live without those. It seems like an impossibility, but that would have been the world that nearly every human being on planet Earth would have been born into at the turn of the 20th century. The origin of the moving image traces its roots back to 1872. That's when railroad tycoon and then California Governor Leland Stanford hired a photographer named Edward Mybridge to create a portfolio depicting his mansion, his other possessions, and most importantly, his racehorse, Occident. You see, Stanford desired a picture of Occident running at full speed, you know, an image that would truly depict the motion of his horse. Now, this sounds really simple by today's standards, but keep in mind that snapping photographs in the 1800s required exposure times of many seconds. And while the shutter was open, if anything, that image moved during that time, you know, say a galloping horse, the image would end up being blurred. But my bridge was up for the challenge. His first effort was, as one would anticipate, a small blurry image, but it did finally provide Stanford with an image of his horse running. And Mybridge continued to improve on his technique, and finally, in July of 1877, a photograph of Occident running at full speed went public and created a bit of a sensation. But the problem was that the image was still a little bit blurry, and therefore they retouched it, and that led to some critics claiming that the photograph was a fake. So, on June 15th of 1878, that's nearly a year later, Mybridge invited the press and others to witness his latest attempt to capture a horse in motion. The location was Stanford's newly acquired 650-acre Palo Alto stock farm. So I'm going to throw in a bit of a side note here, and that's because Stanford would later acquire an additional 8,000 acres surrounding that farm. And it was on this land that Stanford and his wife Jane would establish Stanford University. And that was in 1885 to honor their only child. He was 15-year-old Leland Stanford Jr. who had passed away the previous year from typhoid fever. Okay, back to the story. Mybridge set up 12 cameras along the farm's racetrack, and each one was rigged with a tripwire. As the horse ran and triggered each camera, a sequential series of photographs were produced. Finally, the skeptics were convinced that Mybridge had captured the image of a horse in motion. Yet reproductions of these images were not really in motion. Keep in mind there are no moving pictures at this time. 
You see, what they did is they took the images and they put them in sequence on a singular, what they call cabinet card, kind of a hard stock card, and they would distribute them that way. Just imagine a grid, maybe, you know, four columns across and three rows, and the images would be in sequence that way. So one had to use their imagination that the horse was in motion. So MyBridge's solution was to have silhouettes of his photos copied onto a disc, and then they could be viewed in a machine that he invented that he coined the Zoopraxiscope. And for the first time ever, one could see an image in motion. And it was incredibly primitive, but moving pictures had finally been invented. Now, my French is really poor, as I've mentioned many times before in this podcast. So last night, I got my wife to record the next paragraph. There's debate over when the first movie theater opened. Pantomime Lumineuse, an animated movie created by Émile Renault, is probably the best bet. It was first screened at the Musée Gravin in Paris on October 28, 1892. I should mention that right after she read that, she pointed out to me that the first movie was presented in a museum. So let's jump forward to 1905. And that's when John P. Harris and Henry Davis opened the first theater dedicated to showing movies only. You know, that meant no dancers, singers, comedians, musical acts, or any other form of entertainment and certainly not a museum. It was 100% movies 100% of the time. Located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, admission to the theater was one nickel. That's five cents. So they coined it the Nickelodeon. And it was a phenomenal success, and within a few years, thousands of similar theaters popped up across the United States. One of these early theaters was The Patterson Show, and it was located at 136 Market Street in Patterson, New Jersey. An October 5, 1909 press release regarding its opening read, in part, I'm certainly not going to read the whole thing to you, quote, The policy will be that all of the newest and latest moving pictures will be shown as soon as they are out, and also all of the latest illustrated songs. They will cater to ladies and children. And it goes on and on, but the article concludes... The price of admission is five cents, and you can go in any time and stay as long as you wish. Don't fail to visit this cozy little amusement palace. I dare you to stay as long as you wish in a theater today. Anyway, adjusted for inflation, five cents would be approximately $1.41 today. The exact ownership of the Patterson Show is unclear. Now, a bit of detective work on my part suggests the theater was owned by a Greek immigrant named Christopher Stample. His real last name was Stasinopoulos, and the theater was managed by a guy named Peter Adams, uh, whose real name was Panayotis A. Adamopoulos. And finally, there was his brother, Adam A. Adams. And I'm not really sure how this all fits together. It is possible they all had a partnership in the business, but the show license itself, that was definitely in Stample's name. An advertisement in the Friday, September 22, 1911 edition of the Patterson Evening News read, quote, Patterson's handsome moving picture theater, The Patterson Show, newest and latest moving pictures shown daily. Program changes every day. It's a comfortable place to spend an hour. Illustrated songs and good music. 136 Market Street, City Hall Square. So it seemed as if the theater was welcome to anyone who was willing to pay. And that seemed true until Mrs. Minerva Miller walked up to the ticket booth that same exact day, and she was with two women identified only as Miss Anderson and Mrs. Newman. 
Minerva then proceeded to hand the ticket clerk, that's Mrs. Lena Moore, 15 cents. And of course, the math seems simple. Three patrons at five cents apiece equals 15 cents, right? Well, she had calculated way wrong. Mrs. Moore informed Minerva that it would cost her 25 cents. That's $7.05 today. 25 cents to enter the theater. When Minerva questioned why, Mrs. Moore replied, quote, It is the order of the boss to charge all colored people 25 cents. In other words, admission was five times as much simply because of the color of her skin. Minerva wasn't willing to pay the 25 cents, but really there was little she could do about it at the time. So she walked to the far end of the block to the intersection of Market and Main Streets, and there she met up with a white acquaintance, a guy named Thomas Praxton. And she explained to him what had just transpired, and he assured Minerva that he could get her into the theater. So the two walked back to the theater where, once again, Minerva Miller was denied admittance. In addition, Thomas Praxton was also refused. The Patterson Show had just made a big, big mistake. They chose to mess with Minerva Miller. You see, not only was she the daughter of a well-known minister, but Minerva was also the president of the local African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church's Women's Home and Overseas Missionary Society. In other words, Mrs. Miller had clout in the local African-American community and she decided to fight back against this theater's racist policy. Minerva's solution was to use the power of the legal system to fight this injustice. So she hired Patterson lawyer Robert F. Buckley, and on November 2, 1911, he filed paperwork with the district court in nearby Passaic charging the Patterson show with unlawful discrimination. He based the case on the theater's violation of the 1884 New Jersey statute that was titled An Act to Protect Citizens in Their Civil and Legal Rights. The law reads in part, and I'm going to warn you this is quite verbose, quote, that all persons within the jurisdiction of the state of New Jersey shall be entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, and privileges of inns, public conveyances on land or water, theaters, and other places of public amusement, subject only to the conditions and limitations established by law and applicable alike to citizens of every race and color, regardless of any previous condition of servitude. Uh, But wait, there's more. That any person who shall violate the foregoing section by denying to any citizen, except for reasons by law applicable to citizens of every race and color, regardless of any previous condition of servitude, the full enjoyment of any of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, or privileges in said section enumerated, or by aiding or inciting such denial, shall, and this is the important part, for every such offense, forfeit and pay the sum of $500 to the person aggrieved thereby, to be recovered in an action of debt with full cost, and shall also for every such offense be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor, and, upon conviction thereof, shall be fined not less than $500, nor more than $1,000, or shall be imprisoned not less than 30 days, nor more than one year. And that's why Minerva was suing the theater for $500. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but as you know, I play one on this podcast, 
And therefore, I'm fully qualified to say that this case should have been a slam dunk for Attorney Buckley. You know, the theater clearly violated this law, and they should be forced to pay. But of course, I'm judging this case with my 21st century viewpoint. This was back in 1911, and things were not the same. In fact, by 1911, it had been well established in previous court decisions throughout the United States that it was perfectly permissible for the proprietor of a theater or a similar type establishment to segregate their audiences, you know, white people in one section, minorities in the other. Yet no one within the state of New Jersey had ever challenged discrimination because they had charged members of one race more than another, basically for the same service. And that was the basis for Minerva Miller's lawsuit. From the outset, it appeared that this case was stacked against Mrs. Miller. You see, the case was assigned to Virginia-born Judge Walter Carrington Cabell to decide, and his father had fought for the Confederate Army during the Civil War. In addition, Cabell was appointed to the bench by then-New Jersey Governor Woodrow Wilson, and he's the only U.S. president to have been a subject of the Confederacy, and he was a known segregationist. And there was to be no jury. This case was solely up to Judge Cabell to decide. So you have the judge, the lawyers for both sides, the defendants, even though they're Greek, they were all white. And of course, Minerva Miller was not. She may not have had much of a chance in court, but Patterson's black community strongly supported her. On November 15th, many of these supporters attended a protest at the Colored Men's Association Hall at 159 Governor Street in Patterson, and that's a building that still stands today. Minerva's husband, that's Lewis Miller, explained her case to the audience. Then two prominent clergymen, that's Reverend Thomas H. Amos and Reverend Charles C. Williams, they both spoke out against the theater's practice and they insisted that no law allowed for the charging of black citizens higher ticket prices. Two days later, Judge Cabell began the proceedings, and his courtroom was jam-packed with people. But as soon as the case opened, Joseph Carroll, he was the attorney for the defense, he just stood up and he asked for the case to be dismissed. His argument was that the theater did not deny Minerva entrance to the theater, You see, all she had to do was pay the 25 cents and she would have been admitted. In addition, since she opted not to purchase a ticket, she didn't enter into a contract with the theater and therefore she had no basis for the suit. But Judge Cabell wanted to hear more before he made a decision. So he asked Minerva's lawyers, that's attorney Hughes Buckley that I mentioned before, and Joseph Fury to explain how the theater's actions violated the law. So Fury then proceeded to read the text of the 1884 New Jersey statute, and upon conclusion of the reading, Judge Cabell commented there's really nothing in that law that prevented a proprietor from denying anyone entrance into his establishment. Basically, if the owner wished to turn someone away, they appeared to have every right to do so. I should also mention that Judge Cabell also seemed a bit perturbed when Minerva's attorney Robert Buckley stated that they had already planned to appeal the decision, even though one had yet to be handed down. In addition, Cabell seemed to imply that there was no case here, although he did question the meaning of one phrase in that law, quote, subject only to the conditions and limitations established by law but neither side was prepared to explain what these conditions and limitations were, 
so he instructed both sides to submit briefs to him within one week. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, but when we return, I'll let you know exactly what happened next in the case of Minerva Miller versus The Patterson Show. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. And there they were. At 2 p.m. on Friday, November 24th, 1911, everyone piled right back into Judge Cabell's courtroom. But this time, no one was going anywhere until the case was decided. An article in the next day's morning call newspaper stated, quote, The case was one of the most dramatic ever tried in Passaic. Of course, Minerva Miller was the first witness called to the stand, and she told of how she had gone to the theater with two friends, was told the admission price was 25 cents, how she then went and sought the assistance of Thomas Praxton, and of course, how they were both then denied admission. And Praxton was the next witness for the plaintiff. He stated, quote, I told Mrs. Miller I could get her in for five cents. But when he placed his nickel down on the cashier's counter, she refused him entry also. During cross-examination, attorney Carroll attempted to prove that Minerva Miller was not a black woman because she, quote, had some white blood in her. And logically, if she wasn't black, then of course no discrimination could have taken place. When questioned as to how Mr. Praxon could be certain that Mrs. Miller was a black woman, he replied, I can tell she is colored by looking at her. Mr. Carroll then asked, well then how do you know she's a colored woman? And Praxon gave the perfect reply. I'm sure she's not a man. So Mrs. Miller was called back to the stand. And when attorney Carroll questioned her as to her race, Minerva replied, quote, Yes, I am a Negro, and you can tell it by the flat nose and kinky hair. Well, clearly this line of questioning was going nowhere, so the defense changed its argument. They moved to have the case thrown out simply because the suit should have been brought against the cashier and not against the theater's proprietor, Chris Stample. Judge Cabell didn't agree. 
Carol's next line of argument was that Minerva wasn't denied entrance to the theater because of her race. She was denied entry simply because the theater was full. And to prove this, he called ticket clerk Lena Moore to the stand. She stated, quote, We never refuse admission unless the theater is crowded, and then I'm required to stop the sale of tickets until the crowd goes out. This was the case on that particular evening. Mrs. Moore said that she remembered the evening well based on the movie that had been playing, but she had no recollection of Minerva Miller because all black women looked alike to her. She also denied ever telling anyone that the theater charged black patrons more than white patrons. And to back up this claim, theater manager Peter Adams testified that no one was ever denied admission unless he or she, quote, was intoxicated or crazy. But of course, Minerva wasn't denied admission. The argument here is that she was being charged more simply because of the color of her skin. The defense's last witness was Robert Taylor, who was a real estate and insurance agent. Mr. Taylor was a frequent customer at the theater, and he just happened to be in the ticket booth when Minerva handed over her payment for admission to Lena Moore. Taylor told of how Mrs. Moore informed Minerva that there were, quote, no seats, and how she then went on to explain that Mr. Adams told her that the theater was full. But to refute this claim that Minerva Miller had been denied admittance solely because the Patterson show was full, the plaintiffs called two additional witnesses to the stand. Mrs. Anna Ray testified how she, along with her husband, had gone to the theater the night before the alleged incident. Mr. Ray proceeded to set 50 cents down on the ticket counter and was surprised that he received no change back. When he inquired why, the couple was told that the theater charges 25 cents for black patrons. Next up was a Mr. Henderson who testified that he had also been there the previous evening when 25 cents admission was charged. After being refused entrance, he spoke to Sheriff John Rancière, who told Henderson to go try again, but he was once again refused admission. After all the witnesses had completed their testimony and the lawyers from both sides quoted legal cases from other states, it was time for closing statements. Minerva's attorney, Robert F. Buckley, delivered a very powerful summation. So take a listen. Any discrimination founded upon the race or color of the citizen is unjust and cruel and can have no sanction in the law of the state. If the rights and privileges of the colored citizen are to be restricted by the whims and at the pleasure of those who engage in public business and who solicit public patronage, as has been done by the defendant in this case, then the rights of the colored citizen and the great freedom to him of which we boast will soon be relegated to oblivion and the shackles of slavery will again be welded on this unfortunate race of human beings. The members of the African race, born or naturalized in this country, are citizens of the states where they reside and of the United States. Both justice and public interest concur in a policy which shall elevate them as individuals and relieve them from oppressive or degrading discrimination, and we shall encourage and cultivate a spirit which shall make them self-respecting, contented, and loyal citizens, and give them a fair chance in the struggle of life, weighted as they are at best, with so many disadvantages. It is evident that to exclude colored people from places of public resort on account of their race is to fix upon them a brand of inferiority and tends to fix their position as a servile and dependent people. It is, of course, impossible to enforce social equality by law. 
but the law in question simply ensures to colored citizens the right to admission on equal terms with others to public places, theaters, and places of public amusement. Those are actually great words for 1911, but would they be enough to sway Judge Cabell's opinion? Well, as I said, nobody was going anywhere until this case was decided. And as the 9 o'clock hour approached, Judge Cabell finally issued his decision. And here are just a few key pieces of his ruling. I'm certainly not going to read it in its entirety. The fact of the case is shown by a fair preponderance of evidence that one Minerva Miller, on the night of September 22nd last, went to the place of the Patterson show conducted by the defendant and applied for admission thereto and tendered the usual price for admission, five cents, and was refused admission. The statement being made by the ticket seller in charge thereof that 25 cents is charged for colored persons. The plaintiff claims that there was a discrimination forbidden by law. The argument of the defendant in the course of motions for dismissing the proceedings on non-suit is directed entirely to the common law right. But we are not dealing with the common law, but with a statute framed to cure an evil grown up under the common law. He continued, A statute has been passed in New Jersey, and it is under the statute that this action is brought. The conditions under the common law were the evil the statute was designed to remedy. The common law permitted the owner of a place of public amusement to deny admission to any person or any class of persons for any reason or for any whim. At a time when colored persons were denied the freedom that of right belongs to all men and were generally not on terms of equality before the law with white persons, they were denied equal treatment in places of public resort. When slavery was abolished and when color or previous condition of servitude became no longer a bar to civil equality, it was natural that all discrimination based on these reasons should cease in public places. But it was found that some refused to recognize the new order of equality before the law of all men, and their continual discrimination in public places became a great evil and a gross injustice calling for legislative interference. After citing previous case law to support his decision, Judge Cabell wrote, quote, This defendant was the owner of the show where the unlawful discrimination was made, and there is every reason to believe that he knew of the violation and directed it. The law should hold him responsible, and the court believes it does. Judgment is entered for the plaintiff for the sum of $500. Minerva Miller had won her case. would certainly buy a lot of five-cent movie tickets, 10,000 tickets to be specific. Yet there was to be no celebration, at least not yet, and that's because Attorney Carroll immediately filed an appeal to the state's Supreme Court. While awaiting their decision, the following letter appeared on page 8 of the November 28, 1911 publication of the Passaic Daily News. As a colored businessman of the city and as secretary of the Colored Citizens Association, I wish to ask for space in your columns to say a word of praise for the Honorable W. Carrington Cabell, judge of the District Court of Passaic in the case of Mrs. Minerva Miller versus the Patterson Show Company. I attended the trial and paid strict attention to the case in every respect. The manner in which Judge Cabell overruled the attorney for the defense in his different pleas and motions for a non-suit impressed me as I have never before been impressed in a courtroom. The judge showed a keen conception of the law and his rulings were just and fair. 
The colored people of New Jersey owed Judge Cabell a great debt of gratitude in that he was enough of a judge to set a precedent in the state of New Jersey upholding the civil rights of the black man. Long may he live and climb up the ladder of judicial fame as his ability and common sense judgment will surely bring him to the topmost round. The evidence was conclusive to true, yet I have known of many cases of similar nature when a weak-kneed judge would render adverse decision for fear of public disfavor. Judge Cabell stands out by this act with such noted defenders of the American Negro as Wendell Phillips, Lincoln Douglas, and a host of others. In this case, as in all others of a like nature, we ask for nothing more than a fair, square deal and equal treatment, and we hope this decision of a damage of $500, the full amount allowed under the law, will be a lesson of warning to many other acts of discrimination being practiced here in Passaic County against the Negro. The time has come when we will no longer submit to such treatment, but we will fight in a law-abiding manner. William L. Green Patterson, November 25th. A decision in the case of Minerva Miller, plaintiff appellee versus Christopher Stample, defendant appellant, was handed down by the New Jersey Supreme Court on July 22, 1912. The opinion, which was penned by Justice Samuel Kalish, can be summed up with its final sentence, quote, The judgment of the district court will be affirmed. Minerva Miller had won. Now, I'd like to report that the Millers went on to live a long and prosperous life after all the commotion of this case died down, but that was not to be the case. Husband Lewis Miller would pass away two and a half years later on February 11th of 1915 at 50 years of age. Then, on May 28, 1921, that's about 10 years after this case, Minerva Ann Anderson Miller passed away. She was just 51 years old, and both are interred at the Laurel Grove Cemetery in Tottawa, New Jersey. Now, as for the legal decision itself, clearly this is just a baby step on the road to assuring that everyone has equal rights under the law. You know, most people know all about the key figures in the civil rights movement, you know, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Emmett Till... Uh, Malcolm X, John Lewis, and so on. But most people, and that includes myself, would be hard-pressed to name those who made very small contributions. But Minerva Miller was one of those people, so try to somehow spread this story if you can. She really did make a difference, even if it was a small one. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. So as I bring this podcast to a close, I just want to mention this wasn't the story I initially planned to record. I was working on another story that took place in New Jersey and stumbled upon a brief mention of the Minerva Miller case. After a little research, I decided to switch to this story, but just don't be surprised if you hear another story from New Jersey in the near future. It could be the next podcast for all I know. I haven't actually picked out a story yet. Now, just a reminder that my latest book, The Flipside History, is currently available, as are my two previous books, Einstein Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. All three of those books are collections of long-forgotten true stories, you know, just like the ones you hear in this podcast. Now, just the other day, I received a copy of the signed contract for the Turkish version of the Flipside History. So all three of my books have now been translated, at least in the process of being translated into Turkish. Personally, I don't speak a word of it, but if you do, you now have some options. Um, If you'd like to contact me about anything, whether it be regarding this episode, the podcast itself, my books, or whatever... My email address is steve at uselessinformation.org. You can also contact me through my website. There's a contact form there, or you can use Messenger on Facebook. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast your favorite podcast platform, and you'll have immediate access to new episodes when they're released. My Twitter feed is at UselessInfoCast, and be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there. Anyway, I'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, with the next podcast. I should mention that I do have jury duty next week, so I have no idea how long that's going to take. So the next episode may be delayed. Anyway, thanks as always for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye.